either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Big box office battle brewing this weekend. The beasts have what it takes. Take down the multiverse. We will find out. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. Let's start with the latest in the Transformers franchise. During the 90s, a new faction of Transformers, the Maximals, joined the Autobots as allies in the battle for Earth. This is Transformers Rise of the Beasts. For centuries, our kind has stayed hidden on Earth. But darkness has found us again. Prime. This is about the fate of all living things. Unicron is coming. This is not our war. Optimus, we must trust each other to protect the home we all share. How big can this guy be? Uh, he eats planets. So, like, way bigger than a planet. You've never faced anything like this. Let them come. Yo, Noah, take the wheel. Did we lose count of how many Transformers movies there have been? You said seven, I believe right? this is the seventh one. Yeah, that seems... I know when we were talking with the host this morning on TV, they were surprised yes. there were that many. Because yep. um, some people checked out around the Wahlberg years. Yeah. But uh, full disclosure, not a franchise here that we are that fond of. No. Really. Um, the toys, you know, there's no nostalgia there for us. I know they were they were after There my, is for me. There is yes. for you. Okay, I was going to say I, they were after my time. I didn't have... Transformers, but I played Transformers and watched the cartoon with the, with the two boys that I babysat okay. for all the time. We all played right. with Transformers all the time, and they are really cool toys. It does seem like a cool idea. So that has spawned into this big franchise, kicked off by Michael Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems like, at least with the last couple, the bombast of Michael Bay has been replaced, and it's been a good thing because the focus has been streamlined a little bit more, and I think that's kind of what comes out in, in this movie, in this uh, installment. This is directed by Stephen Capel Jr., who did, he did Creed Part 2. He did. And then he did a movie, a little movie that I liked a few years mm-hmm. ago called The Land, mm-hmm. and The Land meaning Cleveland. A drama set in Cleveland. I liked that too. So he's definitely capable, and and this one sort of continues in that vein of scaling it down. Yeah. So uh, uh, um, Bumblebee, you know, was one where instead of being like all of the Autobots that right. we're following, or <clears throat> you know, uh, Optimus Prime and all of his bombast, and you know, you pick one of the goofy ones, and the the goofy one forms a bond with like a, a, an unlikely human and that's the kind of core story that helps you to you know kind of make the film more intimate they do it they do it in this one the uh with mirage who is voiced quite well by pete davidson yeah and um anthony ramos uh who carries the film in terms of the human character and also dominique fishback who was so great in judas and the black messiah yeah so she works at a museum where they've uncovered this relic, and this relic has brought to life, or has has brought to life the Autobots, who are kind of scattered and and in hiding, and they're not paying attention because this is actually 1994. And you know, fun fact, Kenner 
introduced a new Transformers toy in the <laughs> mid-90s. Yeah. And instead of being something that transformed from a robot to a car and back, it was from an animal to a to a robot. And that was pretty cool. The pretty cool toy. So anyway, here it is. It's 1994, and Anthony Ramos' character, it, he, he needs some money. He's not being able to get a job, and he almost turns to a life of crime. And just as he's deciding, no, I am not going to steal this car, that car comes to life and starts talking to him, and they're off on an adventure. Because this relic that the museum has found is bringing to Earth a god that eats planets. So the Autobots have to get together with the Maximals, which are beasts that they didn't know about. And they all have to fight Scourge, which is voiced (laughs) by Peter Dinklage. And I got to tell you, that guy has such a great voice that I always kind of want to go... Maybe I'm siding with him. I don't know. That's the funny thing here. Peter Dinklage doing a voice. You expect... A really good job. But people are already, I'm reading, surprised by the great voice work that Pete Davidson does. Yeah, and we've talked about this before. You know, you and I, you in particular, really acknowledge what it takes to be a voice talent as opposed to just an actor. I mean, not everybody can do it. No, and it doesn't mean just because you have a great voice, as Peter Dinklage does, that you can do a good job with it. Because I think most people would hear... Pete Davidson and think, oh, he doesn't have a very, you know, yeah. great voice, no. but he can still be a, a very good voice actor. Yeah, he did a good job. Um, and and Anthony Ramos is a very talented actor. And you know, it's you know, it's not a great movie. It's not, but on the scale of Transformers, yeah. But also, you know, I'm I'm very impressed by the way, without a super heavy hand, you know, there's a lot of microaggressions present throughout this film, given the the human cast involved, and mm-hmm. I very much appreciated that. And um, they do, they t- they kind of almost poke fun of Optimus Prime, who you may not even care or know who that is, George, but he's the leader of the Autobots. I do. And he's very regal. <laughs> uh, and, and really now, he just needs to get over himself. And, uh, and that's what uh, Mirage and Anthony Ramos teach him. And in the end, you know, we know that the... Uh, Unicron doesn't eat Earth because it's 1994. Right. But, uh, I mean, spoiler, but, <laughs> you know, as it goes, as these they go... They could be and in the, a different multiverse. Yeah. That's all the rage I've heard. That is true. <laughs> it's um, then The CGI is quite good, and that's not always been the case. Honestly, I think the Michael Bay films had the worst of the CGI. You just thought, I don't even know what's going on right I now, know, whereas I- in this one... You sort of, you're following, okay, it's a car. Oh, look what's going on right now. No, it's a big robot. And and they also do this cool thing where Mirage can sort of fluidly, like, his parts leap off of him and onto Anthony Ramos. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden he's like in, you know, the aliens, you know, get away from her, you bitch suit. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's kind of fun. It's not bad. That's all. I mean, you know, it, I, I'm not going to recommend it, but if you love these movies, it's oh, yeah. much more entertaining than most of them are. Oh, my God. Remember that medieval one? Kill me. You know, and that always was, for, for some of them, a, a problem for me. I would lose track of who was fighting who. Oh, of course. With the action. Uh, but I will have, I, I always do have a soft spot for the very first one because it was back when we were still writing for the newspaper. Right. And I got that complaint letter because someone <laughs> thought the fact that I misspelled Decepticons. Is that what it was? Yes. And so that, don't even listen to me. This guy doesn't know how to spell Decepticons. So why would you Why would you take any sort <laughs> of, of review of this movie, which I thought was funny? Well, my favorite part of that story is that when they printed the, the letter to the editor in the newspaper, the headline that the editor gave was, Typo renders criticism moot, which I thought was hilarious. Oh, uh, so anyway, the point is, if you if you're not really a fan of these, but have to go, okay, it's, yeah. You know, but if you are a fan, you'll probably like it. Quite, I think so. Quite yeah. well. So we'll see if it has enough to take down Spider Man. I'm guessing. What do you think? No, no. I'm guessing no. So what do you think? That is trans.
Transformers Rise of the Beasts in theaters now. Next, we'll go to Hulu for the inspiring true story of Richard Montañez, who as a Frito-Lay janitor disrupted the food industry by channeling his Mexican heritage to turn flaming Hot Cheetos from a snack into an iconic global pop culture phenomenon. It's called Flamin' Hot. Ow, 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 ow. What is it? It burns. You stop eating it? No, I like it. It burns good. I had been searching for an answer. And there it was. They had been there the entire time. I got an idea. It's a spicy chip. It's going to change everything. It will save our factory. And you're a janitor. Okay, no, no, don't hang on. No one can kill your Figure out the next step. Say, the Hispanic market will not be ignored. The Hispanic market will not be ignored. Good, but in your voice. We want to know that we matter to you. If we knew that there was a product out there for us, we'd say, take all our money, cabrones. I got a little hood there at the end, but... I would like to thank Richard Montañez for sticking to his guns and making this the pop culture, whatever you just said that mm-hmm. it is, because I they're really good. They are good. They're so good. And sort of like at the end of the menu where you really wanted a cheeseburger and go uh, out yeah. and get one, you want some flaming Hot Cheetos. Yeah, because you, you know, we were looking for them at lunch today. We were. <laughs> now we're just going to have to go to Kroger's and, and buy a big bag. This was directed by Eva Longoria, and I really like, and she, if you didn't know, she has directed a lot of TV, yep. and she's directed one documentary before this on the uh, boxing rivalry uh, between Oscar De La Hoya and Julio Cesar Chavez. But she directs this. I love the tone. Yeah. And really, you can get a good peek into the tone by just looking at the poster because it's got this guy sort of in the in the, in the the hand of God from Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel touching the finger that he's come up with this incredible invention. So that's the sort of tone that it takes. It's light. It's breezy. It's funny. And it's, it's a great way to tell. A, it is a very inspiring story. It's based on this guy's book. And and the lives, it says in the credits, and the lives of both uh, Richard and his wife, Judy. And Richard is played by Jesse Garcia. Uh, Judy played by Annie Gonzalez. They're both very good. It's so it's a winning cast. You've yes. also get, you're going to uh, notice some uh, familiar faces. Dennis Haysbert, uh, Matt Walsh, mm-hmm. uh, and Tony Shalhoub yeah. in a really crazy wig. <laughs> he, he plays the head, the CEO of Frito-Lay. And he's almost a little bit unrecognizable with his hair. Right. But anyway, it is a it's a very interesting story. Like like they pointed out on on TV this morning, we've seen some of these movies lately about the backstory behind things like Tetris. Right. And this is not as crazy as that. No. But it it is it's very unlikely because this guy was a janitor mm-hmm. and he came up with this great idea and with his family this great recipe for something that his culture that really enjoys spicy foods and got it to be this what is now a billion dollar idea you know one of the things i really appreciated about the film though is that it also it also showed how he managed to figure out a way without money to market it yeah and uh you know in a very sort of blues brothers kind of style but it it worked (laughs) you know yeah Yeah. and there's definitely a a salute a very warm salute to Ava longoria's heritage Mm -hmm. and very uh, well taken but it's a fun story. The tone is just right. I think it's the kind of the perfect tone for this story. 
And uh, the writers are Louis Kolick, Linda Yvette Chavez, and Richard Montanez, because he's mm-hmm. he wrote the book. Mm-hmm. But it is perfect. It's not a hilarious laugh out loud, you know, knee slapper. But it's but charming. It's charming. It's very charming. And warm. And you like all the characters. And of course, this is a, a, a story that you already know how it turned out. Yeah. So, But you're rooting for him anyway. Because- and it's another one, I think, where... You you know without being heavy handed at all you do see microaggressions oh you throughout, definitely do but it's not hateful the film is exactly. not hateful but it's at the same time it doesn't just give it a pass no and so I really I mean she really nailed that tone I thought yeah I do too and I especially like it's it's narrated uh, much of it is narrated by Richard's character and usually we're not wild about right. that but. They do some things where he's telling a story and he says it happened this way and it's just crazy yeah. outlandish and then he admits, all right, it, pro- <laughs> it probably happened more like this and that that comes up with some funny stuff. Yeah, it really uh, so does. So I really, yeah, this is a, I think this is a winner, especially if you already have Hulu in whatever incantation it is today because it's, <laughs> I know it's changing with the Disney Plus and all that and the bundles. In fact, we're going through that as we speak. But um, if you already have Hulu, yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed not to not to enjoy this. It's flaming hot. The story of flaming hot Cheetos. Let's go get some, uh, as uh, Richard's kid says. It burns, but it burns good. Yeah, it's a cute kid. <laughs> flaming hot on Hulu right now. Let's go to theaters next for a dramatic biography set mainly in 1973. A young gallery assistant goes on a wild adventure behind the scenes as he helps the aging genius Salvador Dali prepare for a big show in New York. It's Dali Land. We open in three weeks. How is it working for Dali? We need money. It's like I landed on another planet. I belong. I need you. What's going on? It's complicated. So this is a fake. Paint. You stole from Dali. Salvador Dali is a genius. I need her to push me. Dali, there are bad things going on around you. I give you everything. Felix, don't take him seriously anymore. I'm just trying to tell you the truth. Earth, it frightens me. And this is the basis of my inspiration. Sometimes it is so hard. Being Dali. Well, Ben Kingsley plays Salvador Dali, and that seemed like inspired casting. Oh, just just look at the still pictures from it, or another another time to look at the movie poster, and you get a good idea that oh, I want to see that. Right. That is perfect casting, and he is as delightful as you would think he <laughs> is playing a Salvador Dali. But like a lot of these types of movies, it uses a young newcomer to his world as our eyes and ears into this world. So it's not a straight biography of Dolly by any means, uh, but the title sort of tells it. It's Dolly Land. It's his. It's all that was going on in his orbit in the 1970s because he was, uh, by that time, a recognized as a genius, a legendary painter, surrealist, but also by that time, as the movie points out, he his antics his his parties his lifestyle had come to have the critics sort of write him off as not really a serious artist anymore mm-hmm. and that was the problem that he was facing at this time getting ready for a show and needing money because his lifestyle was very expensive he would throw these parties and decide that what he needed for this party was four dwarves and a suit of armor <laughs> All right, and you know, and he had these—he had this entourage, sort of like an Andy Warhol thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alice Cooper was part of it. He's yeah. a character in this movie. Um, Jeff Fenholt, the guy who starred on Broadway in the original Jesus Christ Superstar, 
some other celebrities of the time. So we had this entourage. Of course, it cost a lot of money. And he had his wife, longtime wife and muse, Gala, who's played by Barbara Sakawa, who's also very, very good. Mm-hmm. And she's the taskmaster, as, as the young assistant uh, is told. She's the power. And she is always making the decisions and trying to shake down the gallery for more money. And, of course, they want more works. And that's where this young this young assistant named James comes in. He's played by Christopher Bryany, who uh, mainly has been one of the stars of that show, um, The Summer I Turned Pretty. I haven't seen it, but it was it was recently recently out. So he's this young assistant who comes in wide eyed. He's he's such a big fan. And of course, you know, he's just on the road to disillusionment as he gets farther and farther inside this this whirlwind of everything going on around Dolly, not only Dolly, but the people around him. And then, you know, they just want him for what they can get out of him. And is the gallery treating him right? Are people stealing from him? What What's going on? He He's sort of the young assistant here, kind of sees it all. And the thing about the movie, we haven't even said, it's the latest directorial uh, effort from Mary Heron. Right, American Psycho. Yeah, yeah, very talented director. And this one is written by her husband, John Walsh. Um, and together it's... You know, I, I bring up the title again because it's a good title to describe this movie because don't come in looking for a, a, a deep dive into these, the psyche of Salvador Dali. That's not what it's about. It's or about, a close look at his work. Exactly. And that's we'll get to that because that's a very interesting point. Um, it's more about it, it documents what was going on in a very entertaining way. But at the same time, that's that's kind of. All it does, it doesn't get any deeper. And the fact that the you really don't see any of his work was very curious to mm-hmm. me um, because it doesn't seem to go hand in hand with the subject. And, and even though Dolly doesn't have the biggest arc in this movie, that would be James. He's the most changed, mm-hmm. of course, by what goes on. It's the, the, the spirit of, of Dolly that drives the movie and everything his, in his orbit that changes James. And since he was a surrealist, the only hint of that that you get is in these flashbacks that uh, Heron and Walsh construct where you see the younger Dolly, played by Ezra Miller, first pursuing Gala and then getting inspiration for his very famous style. And while you see these flashbacks, so does the older Dolly. Mm -hmm. And he's standing there and commenting on it, watching it with us. I thought that was very interesting, very compelling, sort of inviting us into the conversation. And the only real hint of surrealism that you get in this movie, and that seemed where it was really in stride with with Dolly and mm-hmm. what, what we might expect, and especially because, as you mentioned, you don't see any of his works. And it was really, really apparent during one of these flashback scenes where he gets done with what you assume is his first painting in in the style of the you know the persistence of memory the dripping clocks things like that the melting the melting pieces in the in the work and gala says just stares at it and says anyone who sees this picture will never forget it and you're you're we're only seeing the back of the easel we never see it and that is the perfect moment to show us you don't um, so that's obviously a conscious choice. Now, we were talking off, you know, we were talking before this recording about could that be a, a legal type of thing? I don't know. Right. But if it was, why would you set up like that to say, okay, let's see it and then not show it? Unless you're consciously trying to remove the goings on 
from his actual work, which is a curious choice to me. It is a curious choice. And to be honest with you, if you you want to make a movie about Salvador Dali and cannot get the rights to show any of his work, I think you would say to yourself, maybe I'm not going to make a movie about Salvador Dali. Right, but but you still could do it. But including that scene yeah. just made it so, so obvious that, mm-hmm. oh, I'd really like to see it if if you are not familiar with Dali's work. Right. But um, So that did feel feel a bit uh, like a like a hole there you're starting to feel but the performances are very good obviously um, Kingsley is, is just perfect in the role Barbara Sakawa is very good the the uh, the entire ensemble is good and it looks good it's just it seems a bit a bit surface level mm-hmm. um, for for what that you were hoping for especially if as as I am you're such a fan right. of Dolly because as soon as I saw this I'm all man I'm I'm all about this this because I'm a I'm a huge fan of his. In fact, we have a poster hanging in our in our living room of one of his famous works. But uh, it is it's an entertaining film. It's it's a little bit more of a just a, a document than anything more intimate, and it actually ends up speaking more universally on subjects like crass classism and the disposable nature of fame and just a simple fear of death um, than anything really intimate to Dolly. But I still found it entertaining. And it's in select theaters now called Dollyland. Another drama in theaters now focuses on a Marine wounded in Afghanistan being sent to a VA facility in Montana where he meets a Vietnam vet who teaches him how to fly fish as a way of dealing with his emotional and physical trauma. It's called Mending the Line. Who's the kid? Ah, some VA sob story. And you two should get along great then. You know, I can watch TV, then listen to music, fishing. That's all he's done. Does that ever get any easier? Nope. But this, this is the place for me. The most important part of fly fishing, humility. When I was out there on that water, I didn't think about anything else. You went to war, you survived. If you're gonna fish, don't do it alone. Figure out what it is you're willing to live for. Now that's done. Let's go fishing. (laughs) Woo! Well, it's a good cast. It is a good cast, led by Brian Cox as the Vietnam vet who has found healing in fly fishing. And then you've got as as the young the younger vet who's back from Afghanistan, Sinquil Walls, who's suddenly everywhere. Yes, he just was one of the co-stars of the new White Man Can't Jump. Next week, he's going to be seen in the Blackening. Right, and now he's in this. He's a, a Marine sergeant who leads his squad into the, of course, their final tour before going home. Not only is it their final tour, but one of his buddies, his best buddy, is going to go home soon to be married mm-hmm. and. Sinqua's character is going to be the best man, mm-hmm. so they just keep piling yeah, it on. And of yeah. course, you know what happens in the final tour. There's a firefight. Many people die. Um, Sinqua's character is injured physically, uh, which he's recovering well from. It's the mental, the mental scars that are harder. And uh, the character is Coulter, is his name. They call him Colt. And so he has survivor's guilt. And one of the first things he wants to do, he wants to get better and go back because that's where he feels at home. But his doctor, the one doctor specifically, played by Patricia Heaton at the VA hospital, doesn't feel that even though he's going to be physically ready, that he's mentally ready. So, as the synopsis says, he's sent to to learn fly fishing. And right away, it becomes sort of a Mr. Miyagi thing. Mm-hmm. Brian Cox puts him through all these tasks that seem totally unrelated, like washing things, cleaning things. It's a very Miyagi type of thing. 
But eventually he warms up to him and they start getting this zen of fly fishing. And and then there's a best friend. There's a Brian Cox best friend played by Wes Studi who, you know, constantly ribs Brian Cox about what an old coot he is. And then he, he'll drop some sort of nugget of knowledge and walk off. It's a movie that really wants to be respectful to the type of people, the type of characters that these are and real people who have done this found healing and fly fishing. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's a very respectful movie because these are very worthy issues. You know, you've got survivor's guilt, you've got the care of our veterans and, and healing from loss and trauma, because there's another, there's another local that Colt meets uh, as a, a young woman who is still grieving after the loss of her fiance. So there's also just getting, just moving on after trauma. These are worthy, but it's just so heavy-handed with the script. The director is Joshua Caldwell, and I think the last thing we saw of his was that oh, it was bad. It was called Infamous. Yes. Um, yeah, about the one influencers. The social influencers. Go, yeah. yeah, bad. And so, so cliched in your face. This one is much more restrained in a good way, um, and he didn't write the script. The script was one of the first by Stephen Camilio. I don't think... Don't think he has very many under his belt. So he may get there. This is much too contrived and heavy-handed with this messaging. Right. Uh, there's some very nice landscapes, mm -hmm. serene Montana wilds and fly fishing, and you you really feel the respect for the the people and for the issues. But boy, it's just just so heavy-handed that I just can't recommend it. Unfortunately, uh, and that is mending the line in theaters now. And next up is one that's going to be our pick of the week. This is in theaters now, select theaters now. It tells the story of a teenage antihero, Vicaria, who is on a desperate quest to cure death. It's called The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. The mad scientist! What Jada be running around here calling you some type of mad scientist? <laughs> He's here. They called him a monster, and he believed it. Death is a disease. There's a cure. This, I believe, is the first feature film from writer-director uh, Bamani J. Story. Mm -hmm. And it's quite impressive. It's very indie. It's very much an independent film. But it's it's so fascinating. Um, and and that's, that in itself is a feat because we've, you know, people have made and remade and reconsidered Frankenstein a million times. Mm -hmm. So to be able to do it in a way that is relevant is is pretty fascinating. And I also love that... Um, that it revolves around a teenage girl because, of course, Mary Shelley was, in fact, a teenage girl when she wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. So I love that, too. And Vicaria is played by Leia DeLeon Hayes, and she does an amazing job. She really grounds the whole film, and uh, she is a great student, a very smart kid. She lost her mom when she was very little to a stray bullet, and then she loses her brother when she's in high school to a stray bullet, and she essentially just decides she's going to figure out how to bring him back to life. The film is... Very dense with ideas. Uh, you know, you call him a monster long enough, he'll become a monster. It's about the the cycle of violence and poverty. And, and it's also um, sort of shockingly forgiving, which is nice. It, it depicts people in ways that you expect them to be vilified throughout. And in fact, the movie finds some glimmer of hope for almost everybody. 
in ways that you don't expect given sort of the tradition of Hollywood movies. But at the same time, it never forgets that it's a creature feature. You know, it's creepy, it's clever, it's spooky, it looks good, especially for its budget. It was just all the way around quite impressive. Yeah, this is the 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 feature debut for uh, Bomano J Story. He's done some shorts. Mm. About this is his feature debut, and I think... A pretty impressive one, very much. Especially with, like you say, you're going to tell somebody, "Well, we're going to we're going to do a new version of Frankenstein." Oh, are you? Yeah. Uh, and that's a tough to find a relevant way to do it. Yeah, and, it really and does. I think they really, really do. So, but yeah. So keep in mind, though, it is a creature feature, right? Mm-hmm. So people who who go in knowing, I mean, Frankenstein. Yeah. Obviously, you know that's a creature feature. Yeah. So I mean, this this girl's. This girl's ambition is to cure death. Mm-hmm. So um, you can kind of figure. What, right. What, well, that, what that was Victor that. Frankenstein's yeah. hope, too. That <laughs> yeah. was Frankenfurter's hope, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's brought into a very, very timely and relevant, uh, not only message, but time stamp. Yes. And what's going on in, in her life. And uh, yeah, well worth it. Well worth it. In theaters now, select theaters called The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster. Next is a Korean drama about a solitary woman reevaluating her isolated existence after her neighbor dies alone in his apartment. It's called Aloners. This is from writer-director Hong Seong-un, and the written review is up now at madwolf.com by Rachel Willis. Who loved it. Yeah. And it's a slow-moving story. It's a character study about a woman who, you know, spends all of her time alone on a screen unless she's taking calls from somebody. And yeah. then the banter is, you know, inauthentic. It's and at work, taking calls at a call center. So it's it's interesting. Um, and it, it is intentionally set prior to COVID. It's, it's a pre-COVID film that really speaks to a post-COVID time where we've just all gotten used to such solitary existence and, and just functioning entirely alone if we, if we it's, impos- it's possible, it's entirely possible not to really interact in any kind of meaningful way with other people. And it's just a lovely, lonesome depiction. Yeah, there's been many filmmakers that have taken on, for obvious reasons, that theme of the dehumanizing nature of our technology mm-hmm. right now but uh, not all are able to do it with as much nuance and with with and, and make it as compelling as this one does exactly yeah and it is aloners and it is out in theaters now and you can find the full review from rachel willis at madwolf.com and one more a documentary available now on vod a nostalgic and colorful peek behind the pages and personalities of international mail one of the most ubiquitous and sought-after mail-order catalogs of the 80s and 90s. It's called All Man, the International Male Story. Gay men and straight men have a lot more in common than anybody thinks. Both fetishize masculinity. The straight men could aspire to be that guy, and gay guys could look at it and say, oh, I want to do that guy really badly. So many people would say, oh, that gay catalog. A lot still have a fear of thinking, oh, if I wear that, I will look like I'm gay. Whoever was the person who started International Mail got to live out his greatest visual fantasies. Who would have ever known a little catalog company could have such a massive influence on the male identity? 
This was reviewed by the Shocketeer, mm-hmm. Daniel Baldwin at MadWolf.com. And it's a documentary that he really enjoyed and yes. thought was really, really effective. One of the reasons, I mean, one of the things that makes a documentary so compelling is if you had no idea. Right. And I think there are probably there are there are those of us who recall the existence of this catalog, International yep. Mail. And that's about as far as it goes. That's I me. recall that that's it exists. Exactly right. So to hear the whole story about how it came to be, about what they did with it, about really how it revolutionized men's fashion I had no idea. Yeah. globally yep. and also what it meant to the LGBTQ population sort of coming of age in the 80s and 90s. Everything about it is fascinating and completely new information. Well, that's one of the things that can make a documentary so enjoyable. Yep. It brings you into a world you didn't know about mm-hmm. and and teaches you and teaches you things about it because you're right. That's exactly my feeling about International Mail. I was aware of it, mm-hmm. never picked it up, had no idea about its beginnings or its influence, mm-hmm. and I and honestly, I never even thought about it. And here gives me a good reason that I should have, yes, and, and to and to check it out. And I can only imagine for people that did live through it and did and do have a reverence for it that they get as much or more out of it as well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, really, really well done documentary that tells a story that you may or may not know, but tells it in a way that's uh, that you're glad you heard all about it. And it's uh, writer Peter Jones, directors Brian Darling and Jesse Finley Reed. So yeah, definitely a big recommendation from the Schlocketeer Daniel Baldwin. You can find that review up now at MadWolf.com. And All Man, the International Mail Story, available now on VOD. All right, speaking of Daniel, let's head to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Time to check back in for the latest news and notes with Daniel Baldwin, a.k.a. The Schlocketeer. What's happening? Well, I've got a lot of stuff that people can watch either right now or very soon. I thought it was a good thing. Oh, yeah. First up, uh, Creed 3 is now streaming on Amazon Prime. So if you missed that in theaters, you can catch up with it now. And Magic Mike's Last Dance is now streaming on HBO Max. Oh, wait. Isn't it, isn't it Max now? I think it's just Max now. But <laughs> 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 it might be something different in six months. That's right. Who knows. That's right. And then Renfield is now available to stream on Peacock. And getting a little bit weirder on Hulu is The Devil Conspiracy. Now, what is The Devil Conspiracy? Well, imagine if someone told Paul W.S. Anderson to adapt to the Book of Revelation, and that's how you get The Devil Conspiracy. All righty, then. It's weird but entertaining. Yeah. And uh, Fast X is now available to rent on premium VOD, so that's probably going to swing you about 20 25 bucks. But if you don't want to pay to take the whole family to the theaters for it, mm-hmm. you know, get option at home. Mm-hmm. And Ari Oster's latest, Bo is Afraid, will arrive on VOD next week on June 13th. So if it didn't hit your area like it didn't hit mine, you'll finally be able to catch up with it soon. It's a nutty one. And the British action comedy Polite Society will be available to stream on Peacock beginning June 16th. The live-action manga adaptation Knights of the Zodiac is hitting VOD on June 27th. And then short week, I've only got one more thing for you, and it is an, a release date announcement. Uh, Universal has set the next Fast movie for April 2025. Mark it down. Yep. <laughs> now, is that the one? Is that the, like the Hobbs and Shaw spinoff? See, I don't know yet. Um, they've got it listed as Fast X Part 2. I know Diesel had recently said that instead of it being a two-parter, it would be a three-parter. So I don't know if. Part two is the Hobbs movie, or if we should expect the Hobbs movie before April 2025. All right. More as it comes. Keep us posted.
Yep. All right. Well, you can always uh, get the latest news from Daniel on the socials at the Schlocketeer. Thank you, as always. Thanks for having me. All right, looking ahead to next week. It was this week was somewhat quiet. Not so next week. Very a, noisy. A big week. Something called the Flash is coming out next week. <laughs> also, Elemental and the Blackening. Well, we just talked about one of the stars, Cinque Walls. Uh, the Blackening is out next week. Documentary. It ain't over. Also, Maggie Moore's. Mm-hmm. Been hearing about that one for a while. That's out next week. And Sierra. Uh, Moon Garden. Persian Lessons. Dry Ground Burning. Peppergrass. Oh, that was another one from Nightmares Film Festival that we enjoyed very much. Looking forward to uh, talking about that. And also one called Aged is coming out next week. But uh, what about this week? Transformers. You love that? You love the toys? You love the whole franchise? Let's talk about it or anything that's out uh, this week or what you're looking forward to next week. Keep the conversation going easily on Twitter. You can find us at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F, also on Facebook and Instagram. That's at Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our reviews and everybody's written reviews and our horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club, brand new uh, episode, about ready to drop here in a few days. That's all at MadWolf.com. And speaking of all the socials, we heard from Seth this week. Always great to hear from Seth, a good dude who said that he listens to our podcast every week. This is where he gets his movie information and he looks forward to it. How kind is that? Very kind. Thank you, Seth. Always great to hear from you. Appreciate that. So keep in touch. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the movies. Until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap.